Thank God for what he's doing around the world to members of our church. Good morning, Summit Church. If you've been around here for a little while, you've heard me say this before, but what is astounding about that group that you just heard from is not just that they have moved halfway across the world to share the gospel in a language that they are having to learn. What is astounding is that group that you just heard from, uh, seven out of the eight of those students, including the one who looks like Jesus of Nazareth, um, (laughs) seven out of the eight of them were not Christians when they came to college here in the Triangle. Uh, which means that they came to Christ um, here at our church and uh, are now um, serving and testify to him um, overseas uh, somewhere. Um, That is really the core of what we want to be about as a church. We want to reach people who are very far from God to equip them for life and ministry and then to send them out. Now, for many of you, uh, that is going to mean equipping you and sending you out right here in the Raleigh-Durham area. This is a very strategic place where we live. And uh, many of you are stationed here, positioned here, and we want to equip you and send you out here to our local community. But for another group of you, that means that God is calling you into full-time ministry as a missionary, as a pastor or a church planter, or to be a strategic part of one of those teams. So let me speak to that latter group here for just a minute. You see, we are committed to being a great sending church. We want to be a church that sends out hundreds, if not thousands, of pastors, church planners, and missionaries over the next 40 years. So I want to invite those of you who are preparing or considering preparing for some kind of vocational ministry um, to a special meeting on Sunday, September 16th at 1.30 p.m. at the North Raleigh campus. All right, Sunday, it's, information's in your worship guide if you, if you missed that, but here's what's going to happen at that meeting. I'm going to lay out for you what it looks like for us as a church to be involved in the training and the sending of you while you're here. You know, it's not after you're, you know, getting ready to leave. That, that's not the time to start thinking about that. It's now. Um, so I'm going to lay out for you what that path will look like. We're going to have representatives from different ministries who will share opportunities for being trained here on the job at the summit. They're going to talk about everything from small groups to internships to church planting training. If you think God might be calling you to ministry, this is your opportunity to find out about the training and opportunities that are available to you here at the Summit Church. Now, you do not, and I repeat, you do not need to be a seminary student to come to this meeting. I mean, maybe you're a nurse in training, and maybe you feel like God might be uh, wanting to you to leverage your skills to help reach Muslim women. You should be at this meeting then. Maybe God is calling you to pastor or plant here in the United States. You should be there. Maybe you want to be a part of an international team, learning how to leverage business skill for the mission. You should be at this meeting. If you are a seminary student, well, it goes without saying, you should definitely be there, because if you're in seminary and not preparing for ministry, I don't know if you know what you're doing. All right, but if you, so you should definitely be there. Um, all that to say, Sunday, September 16th, 1.30 p.m. at the North Raleigh campus. We're even providing lunch. Um, as always, it would really help us if you would RSVP in the city. Um, if you can't figure it out, then you just show up and we'll deal with it. Uh, but it would really help. It would be a way of loving Jesus by loving us if you would RSVP for us in the city. Um, so, um, but that'll be next week. North Raleigh, we'll be coming to you. Um, so, anyway, hello to all of our campuses at the Summit Church. If all of you all across the triangle would take out your Bible right at this moment and you would open it to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, we are in week number 3 of a series called Can't Believe in which we're looking through the gospel of John at seven different kinds of people who couldn't believe and how Jesus addressed each one of them. Now, I know that as we've gotten into this series, some of you might have been saying subtly, well... I'm just not really sure how this series applies to me because I already believe in Jesus. But you got to understand that really what Christian growth is, is learning to to really believe in Jesus, to re-believe in Jesus, to take your belief from something that you acknowledge in your creed to something you lean the weight of your soul upon. So what scholars tell us, the word believe that's used 99 times throughout the Gospel of John, that's what it literally means. To believe means to lean your weight upon something. Think of it as the difference between being in an airplane and believing that the parachute would actually, you know, guide you safely to the ground and then jumping out of that airplane. Those are two fundamentally different things. That that latter thing, that jumping out of the airplane is what John would mean when he says believe. It is belief in action. 
It is belief that has leaned the weight of its soul upon this thing. So whether you're a believer or not, I think there's a lot in here for you. You might be learning to believe in Jesus for the first time. We have a lot of people that I've heard from the last couple weeks that you're in that category. There's a large number of you also that are, are relearning what it means to trust and to believe in Jesus. So there's something in here for everybody. So John chapter 6, in John chapter 6, we're going to encounter a group who can't believe for two reasons. First, they don't understand their real problem. And because they don't understand their real problem, they are so focused on quick fixes that they miss the real Jesus and the real gospel when it's right in front of them. Do you remember the first week of this series, I referenced a quote by a guy named Francis Schaeffer, who said that if he had an hour to explain the gospel to somebody that had never heard it before, a 21st century man who had never heard it before, he would spend the first 45 or 50 minutes of that hour on the negative, trying to show this guy that he really was in a hopeless dilemma, that he really was spiritually dead, that there was no possible way he could save himself. He said, and after 45 or 50 minutes of that, I would spend the last 10 minutes, only the last 10 minutes, explaining to him the good news of the gospel. He said that a lot of our evangelistic outreach work fails today simply because we're so anxious to get to the answer that we never have people understand the problem. Well, this group in John 6 is a perfect example of that. They don't understand the problem, so they're blind to the solution when it's right in front of them. Now, I think this group today would include a lot of Republicans who believe that if societies were just free and they were all democratically government, governed and the government would just get out of the way, then everybody could thrive. I think that group would today include a lot of Democrats who believe that if the rich would just pay their fair share and help the poor, then there would be enough prosperity to go around. This group would include a lot of well-intentioned social activists. I think it would include a lot of educational reformers and public school teachers and college professors and those who are working to end world hunger and those trying to stop the sex slave trade. Good people, many of them working on very worthy projects, many of them even thinking of themselves as Christians. But the mission and the message of Jesus is secondary to them because they don't understand the real problem. Here's how you know you're in this group, by the way. You're kind of bored with Jesus. You don't hate him. You don't hate him. Again, you, you, you probably even call yourself a Christian, but you're just not filled with love and passion for him. You see, the sign that you have encountered the real Jesus is that you are consumed with one of those two emotional extremes, either fierce hatred or consuming love. Lukewarm feelings about Jesus, apathetic feelings about Jesus, even positive apathetic feelings about Jesus are a sure proof that you've never encountered the real guy. This same group in John 6, at the end of the chapter, is going to stumble over belief for a second reason, and that is because Jesus is going to drop some really hard things, things that offend them, things that cut against the grain, things that shatter their worldviews. But because they are only looking for a prophet who teaches a new philosophy of life, or a life coach who can give them better tips for living, or a new social activist who can give them a better agenda to go out and pursue politically in the world, because that's all they're looking for. They're not prepared for a gospel that rocks their world and a glorious Savior who will blow their minds. And they're going to look back at Jesus and they're going to say, we don't really like this part of you. We like this other part over here. We think that's awesome. But this part right here, this is offensive. Today, we'll see a lot of people who like to appropriate various parts of Jesus' message into their own, especially the parts that work with their pre-existing worldviews told you before about watching a couple pastors on Larry King Live, one of them who believed the Bible, the other one who, based on my, you know, the, my observation, looked like he took the Bible as a launching point, got a couple ideas from it, then launched out and kind of got his own religion. And, uh, and so, but he still considered himself a Christian pastor, and this one guy, the faithful Bible teacher, was trying to explain what the Bible said about various issues, and this other guy kept interrupting him, saying, well, my Jesus wouldn't do, my Jesus would never do, my Jesus would never say, my, he just said it over and over again, until finally this one pastor looks at him on Larry King Live and says, you don't get your own personal Jesus. There's only one Jesus, right? You either, you either believe what he says about himself or you reject him. It's almost like we've created, you remember that old movie, The Stepford Wives, Anybody? Anybody remember that? Where you got a group of men who are sick of their wives, and so they're like, it'd be better if we just designed a robot wife, and then she would do exactly what we want. 
and for a while it works great, but at the end they realize they don't know a real person. What they've done is just created a reflection of themselves. A lot of people do that with God. It's like they just want a reflection of themselves. They want to deify the things about themselves that they like. Jesus is not a salad bar where you take the parts you like and leave the parts you don't. And what he is going to tell these people at the end of this chapter is, you either understand that I am the Holy One from heaven and you receive everything that I'm saying or you reject me altogether. There's not gonna be a middle category. So I'm gonna call this group with these two problems, I'm gonna call them the short-sighted. Because they don't understand the real problem, they don't recognize the real Jesus. And their problem goes back to a shortness of sight. So, all right, let's get into it. We're gonna begin reading in verse 14. So let me summarize first 13 verses for you. John chapter six opens up with a problem. And that problem is that the people that are listening to Jesus are hungry. Not metaphorically hungry, but actually physically hungry. You see, Jesus had a lot to say. And because he had a lot to say, his sermons would often go on for a long time. Not 45 or 50 minutes like you people complain about, all right? But all day. And in this case, Jesus started his sermon sometime after breakfast, taught straight through lunch, and all the way through dinner. He takes a little break after dinner, and he turns to his disciples, and he says to them, man, it looks like these people are getting hungry. They're starting to get kind of cranky. What do you think I should do? Now, verse 6 tells you that this was a test question because he already knew what he was going to do, so this was like a faith pop quiz. So the first disciple to respond to him, this is found in the Gospel of Luke, um, is Peter, and Peter responds to him and says, what, that's a dumb question, Jesus. There's like 20,000 people here. I, I know your Bible says 5,000, but they only counted heads of household when they counted crowds, so you gotta throw in a wife and a couple friends and you know, kids or whatever. So, so you, you got about 20,000 people here, Jesus. That's not a real question. We, are, we don't have the capacity to feed 20,000 people. Right? This is kooky talk. You gotta, you gotta send them home. We can't do it. Fail, Peter gets a big F. All right, second person to speak is Philip. You'll see that there in verse, I think, seven. And, or, yeah, yeah Philip says, um, well, 200 denarii, Jesus, is not enough to buy food for these people, even for each of them to have just a little. Now, you gotta read that with the sarcasm that is intended in it. 200 denarii is eight months' wages. So what he's essentially saying is, Oh, yeah, Jesus, that's a great idea. We could all go get jobs right now. We could all work for eight months. We could save all of our money and then pull it together and then go out and buy each of these people like a snow cone or something. And I'm sure that's gonna help the fact that they're hungry right now. Fail, right? Finally, one of the disciples, Andrew, says, well, I found a little boy whose mama packed him a lunch and he says that he's willing to share it with you, Jesus, if you're hungry so you can just duck backstage real quick and eat his lunch. We'll like, you know, distract everybody. We'll lead everybody in a song, Jesus Loves Me, or something like that, you know, and then, and then you'll come back up and you can eat. It started off so well, didn't it? Fail. So Jesus takes the little boy's lunch of five loaves and two fish. He prays over it and he starts to distribute it. Well, as the disciples are distributing it, as it is in their hands, it begins to multiply. And as it multiplies, they can't give it away fast enough. And so after everybody has eaten everything they can possibly eat, they take up what's left of this little boy's five loaves and two fish, what I've called before a Hebrew Happy Meal. And they take the leftovers of that Hebrew Happy Meal and they collect 12 bushel baskets full to overflowing. Verse 14. So when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Verse 15, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Stop there for a second. They're excited. I mean, look at what this guy just did. And they're thinking, imagine if this guy was the head of our nation. I mean, talk about a chicken in every pot and a car in every driveway. I mean, if this guy can do this with five loaves and two fish, imagine what he can do with the stock market. This guy could end world hunger. Talk about healing the planet. This guy walks on top of storms. He wouldn't just fix Medicare, he could remove the need for it. But notice what Jesus does, verse 15. But Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, that's a kind of strange reaction, is it not? Because usually preachers like crowds. Take it from one. Because that lets you know that your message is connecting. But just when the crowd is really getting into Jesus, when it's taken off, when he's trending, all right? When he's trending on Twitter, um, he hightails it and gets out of there. Where are you going, Jesus? I'm going away from those people. Why? Because they love me. This is not shyness on Jesus' part, by the way. No, he is avoiding disaster, eternal disaster. 
Because you see, they're missing the point. He didn't come to end world hunger, at least not at first, as important as ending world hunger is. He's got something even more important than that, and they are missing it. They're missing the best thing because they're fixated on a good thing. So he goes up in the mountain and hides until nightfall. And after nightfall, he takes an evening stroll on the sea, not by the sea, mind you, but on the sea. And he walks over to the other side. Well, somebody over there saw him and tweeted about seeing him, so the crowd, in verse 25, finally finds him on the other side of the sea and says, Rabbi, how did you get over here? Verse 26, no explanation, no explanation at all. Verse 26, he just answered them, truly, truly. Now remember, I told you in the Gospel of John, when Jesus drops a truly, truly, that means things are getting serious. So he, boom, drops a truly, truly on him. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. He's got a different kind of bread that he's offering. He knows that he could end world hunger, and he could restore world peace, and he could ensure life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness for all people, and still not have dealt with the real problem. So jump down to verse 34. So they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Remember how the woman last week in John 4 thinks Jesus is talking about physical water when he's talking about something much deeper? Same exact thing is happening here. They don't get that the physical bread he's talking about is just a picture of the real bread that he is offering from heaven. Verse 35, so they said to him, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The bread that he is offering is reunion with God because that is what the human soul is missing. That is what it is craving. It's what Blaise Pascal famously called the void in every human heart. That whether you believe in God or not, there is a vacuum, there is a void, he said, that you don't exactly know why it's there or what it's hungering for, but you spend the majority of your life trying to figure out what will settle that emptiness. And so for a while, when you're a teenager, you try you try crazy stuff, you try drugs and alcohol and sex, and then you settle down and you try marriage, and then you try career success, and then you try retiring wealthy, and he says, none of it, none of it ends up working because that hole is in the shape of God himself. It was a hole that was created by God for God, and until you get God back into the right place in your life, nothing that you will do will satisfy, not the best romance, not the best sex, not the, not the greatest amount of money that you could achieve. Jesus, you see, did not show up with merely external fixes because there was, get this, nothing external that anybody could give us, not even Jesus. There was nothing external that anybody could give us, not even Jesus, that would satisfy the starving condition of our souls. It was God that we were missing. It was God that his gospel would restore to us. Our soul craving, you see, is not for something. Our soul craving is for someone. And until we've been reunited to that someone, our souls will always be famished and corrupted. I mean, this is a recurring theme throughout literature and movies. If you study literature and, and movies for the last hundred years, um, as technology develops, people start to postulate, what's it like if somebody gains the ability to live forever? And one of the recurring themes, it's pretty fascinating, is it never ends up well. Somebody figures out how to live forever, but they end up being miserable because we know we know there is a, dis a difference between merely existing and really living. And merely existing forever is not really what we're after. It's what, it's what does it mean to live forever? When the Bible talks about eternal life, it's not just talking about um, existing forever. By the way, that's actually the definition of hell. Hell is you go on existing forever just apart from God. In fact, you might say that you have two options for eternity. You can go to a place of eternal existence or you can go to a place of eternal life. God offers eternal life, not just eternity of existence. He offers eternal life, which is not a quantity of time, it is a quality of existence. Ray Kurzweil, I was reading this a couple weeks ago, um, is what they call a futurist, um, which means he analyzes technological trends and tries to make predictions about where things are going in the future. He's actually pretty reliable, fairly intriguing. Um, this one I think he's probably, you know, is a stretch, but he said that the day will soon come when we will have developed nanotechnology to the point that we'll have little computers that can run through our bloodstream, can spot disease and decay, and fix it. 
He said, and this will enable the human body to live for a thousand years. He said, maybe much longer. He said, it's not that far off in the distance. Now, again, I think that might be a stretch, but let's just ask that. If that really happens, will our problem be fixed then? No, because we'd still be missing the one thing we were created for, and that is fellowship with the living God. It is not physical bread. It is not medicinal bread that we need. It is a eternal bread. We weren't just made of things of the earth. That's why the bread of the earth alone does not satisfy. It is the bread from heaven. It is God himself. And to live forever apart from God is the definition of hell. So Jesus, or they say back to him, verse 28, well, then what do we got to do to be doing the works of God? All right, well, tell us, how do we obtain this Heavenly bread, how do we get this bread of God? Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work of God for you, that you believe in him whom he has sent. It's not something you can do. This is a bread that's gotta be given to you as a gift. You were powerless, you see, to restore what was lost. So God himself did the work of restoring your salvation. The bread here, by the way, is a great picture of the gospel. In order for bread to do your body any good, it has to be broken. Your teeth have to break it up into pieces and chew it up. Jesus would be broken for us so that he could feed us. In order for water to do you any good, it has to be poured out. It has to be poured out and into you. Jesus' blood would be poured out so it could become the water of life to us. The meal for our starving souls would be provided for entirely by God. Our part was simply to take and eat. Just like last week, our part is simply to come and drink. Week before that, our part is to look and live. All the work of salvation, God did. And he gives you in John three different ways of saying the same thing. The healing is there, look at it and live. The water is here, take and drink, come and drink. The bread of life is here. You don't manufacture it, you don't produce it, you don't work for it, I do all the work for it. I'm the one who's broken, I make the bread, I die, I resurrect from the dead. You just take and eat, that's it. Which shows you, by the way, in those that little, there's several set of verses there, shows you the two things, get this, that distinguish the true gospel from every false gospel ever postulated. Whether that gospel, false gospel sounds Christian or not. There are two things that distinguish the true gospel from the false gospel. I'm gonna give you two words you ought to remember. This will help you whenever you're talking to somebody, even if they're sounding super Christian. Right? These two words have to be the dominant things in the gospel. Number one, God. I know that sounds like crazy, but that I would need to say that, but I, I do. God, the true gospel's primary focus is reconciliation with God. Jesus would not let his ministry in John 6 become primarily about an in-world hunger or prosperity for all campaign. Even though those things are both worthy and super important, in fact, when it looked like it was about to become that, he ran away from it. Because our problem runs much deeper than anything that could be fixed by food in our stomachs or clothes on our backs, education in our brains, or even justice in our governments. In the 19th century, there was a movement in Great Britain called the British Socialist Movement, um, which thought, that basically the idea was that man had progressed far enough that education was now taking root, and the British Empire thought that if it could just spread its culture and education into all of the world, then we would leave behind the days of savagery and we would go into a place where men essentially and women would be perfect in their culture. Now what is fascinating is if you go back and look at a lot of the spokespeople who spoke at the beginning of the 20th century, the turn of the century, and then spoke about 50 years later and compare what they said at the two times, because they were saying things like, we're about to enter a, a century where there's going to be no war. Because men are going to, through education, going to learn to live peaceably with one another. One of them, Beatrice Webb, wrote in her diary in 1890. She says, I am staking everything in this philosophy and political movement on the essential goodness of human nature. People are basically good. We're just going to be educated. That's all they need. She referenced that exact statement 35 years later, but then she said this, so in 1925, I realize now how permanent the evil instincts and impulses in us are that mere social machinery can never change. David Cecil, after the Holocaust of World War II said, get this, the philosophy of progress had led us to believe that the savage and the primitive was behind us. But it turns out 
the savage and the primitive was within us. You see, the way you can tell a, a true gospel from a false gospel is that the real gospel has as its primary focus the restoration of God to us and the changing of the human heart so that it loves and adores God because it is fundamentally flawed. The true gospel is about God. It has as its primary focus reconciliation with God. The locus of its hope is God. The focus of its affections is God. John Piper says it this way, the gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. That's what most of us think, right? Isn't that how most of us first like, came to receive Jesus? Somebody asked us if we died tonight, do we know for sure where we go? I don't know why we always think we'll die at night, but for whatever reason, that's always how it's phrased. If you died tonight, do you know that you go to heaven? I don't, so I better ask because I want to go up to heaven. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It's a way to get people to God. Behold your God is the most gracious command and the best gift of the gospel. Can I tell you that this is why I hate, I loathe, I harangue, I belittle, I mock, I cajole, I whatever other hateful things I can think about. Why I do all those things to the prosperity gospel? Because the prosperity gospel says essentially, come to God and he'll give you stuff. I'm like, come to God and get stuff. What you need is God, not some secondary stuff that he can give you. God is not a means to an end. God is the end himself. He doesn't come to give you the bread of life. He is himself the bread of life. By the way, it's not that God won't give you a better family or bless your career or give you greater prosperity. Christianity is always a blessing to a family. It's always a blessing to a society. It has led more nations out of poverty than any other ideology. That's not a preacher talking, that's a historical fact. Just look at what's happening now in South American countries as they embrace Christianity, the changes that it's making in those countries. So Christianity does all those things, but they're side effects. The primary gift of the gospel is God himself. Indeed, until you feast on the bread of Jesus himself, all the other things that you're seeking, all the other kinds of lesser kind of bread are just gonna leave you hungrier. John Piper again, indeed there are 10,000 gifts that flow from the love of God, but none of these gifts will lead to final joy if they've not first led to God. As some of you come back to church because you're looking for some secondary gift for God to give you. Oh, I didn't really need God in my family. I got kids now and I don't know how to figure out how to raise them. I need God to work in my marriage because my wife and I don't think we're gonna make it. I need God to add balance to my life. I'd really like to go to heaven when I die. I need purpose and peace and a legacy and all, you know, all that stuff. Great, 10,000 gifts await for you when you come to God. But until they have led you to God himself and until you have possessed God who is better than all those gifts, every one of those gifts, no matter how good and how sweet, will leave you hungry. C.S. Lewis had a great statement on this. I love this. C.S. Lewis said, it seems that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. In other words, we're messing around with temporary bread when what God offers us is infinite bread. And we're so fixated on whether or not our lives are filled with this kind of bread that we miss the fact that infinitely satisfying bread is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased, and that's our problem. What a great statement. I remember when I, first time I took my, my oldest daughter, who is nine now and was two or three at the time, to the beach. You know, we, we, we were staying at one of those places where you had to drive a golf cart from the place you were staying actually out to the, um, to the beach, and so we drive over there, and uh, again, my daughter's never been, and it's just rained, you know, so we hop out of the golf cart, and in the parking lot, there's these little, like, puddles. And, uh, you know, so she's got a little swim diaper on, and she's got her floaty, and uh, she just hops out of the golf cart, and immediately goes over and just, just sits right down. Uh, and one of these things, she starts splashing around. I'm not really paying any attention. Um, I'm headed up, you know, over the sand dunes. Uh, I should, probably should watch my daughter in the parking lot more, but um, I'm headed up over the sand dunes, and I turn around, and I'm like, Karis, come on. The beach right over here. She said, no, Daddy, I love the, why the puddles, the mud puddle. You see? And I'm like, look, a bigger mud puddle than you have ever imagined is right over there. Just you can't see it. Go right over these dunes, and you're going to see the biggest sandy pool of water you could ever imagine. 
What Lewis is saying is that there's a number of us that get so fixated on these little tiny pools that we forget that the infinite ocean of God's joy and love, the bread of his presence, is what awaits us. That means, by the way, church, listen, that means politics and all these activist causes are secondary. Hear me correctly on this. I'm not saying they're not important. The Bible commands us to love and bless and take care of our neighbors. But as important as all those political and secondary agendas are, they can never displace the centrality of the gospel message in our mission. You see, our generation is a, a, I say our generation to college students. I know that I'm 19 years older than most of you. Uh, I'm 39 years old. But you know what? Our generation, our generation is a very cause-driven generation, isn't it? Everybody, companies are all into giving back. That's how you tell if a company's good or not. Do they give back? I call it the Bono factor. Everybody's got a cause. Everybody's got bracelets with different initiatives and a, a pair of those wretched Tom shoes on their feet, right? That's just, that's just who we are. And that's all well and good. It really is. But we can never lose the focus that Jesus died for Tom's soul. And Jesus provided bread for, of life for Tom's soul because people don't just need shoes on their feet. They need forgiveness of their sins. They need the bread of God's presence. And we don't want well-clothed, well-fed people who die and go to hell with free shoes on their feet. Yeah, we want to alleviate suffering. Of course we do. That's a Christian's duty. But the most significant suffering of all is eternal suffering. The suffering of the soul that is starving from being separated from God. So yes, we want to put bread in their stomachs. We will always do that. But more importantly, we want to point them to the bread that is given to them from heaven. Listen to me, okay? Regardless of what side of the political fence you feel like you're on, ask yourself this question. What if we achieved every political agenda that your team had ever dreamed of? What if we really achieved peace in our time? What if the American dream became a reality for all people? What if there really was peace and justice for all? What if we became number one in education in the world? What if we really slowed the rise of the oceans and healed the planet, and then our generation died and went to hell? Did we do our job? No, I'm not saying those things are not important. Again, when we love our neighbor, we will be activists on their behalf, but I'm saying that these secondary kinds of bread can never eclipse the message of the bread from heaven that Jesus offered, which is why our mission to the world is never just random acts of kindness. It is acts of kindness accompanied with bold acts of proclamation. Because we are, yes, we are healing the body, but we are also giving them the bread of life for the soul, which is not about something we can do for them or they can do for themselves. It's something about Jesus did for them 2,000 years ago that can satisfy the deepest parts of who they are. And by the way, church, because politics are a secondary matter in the church, get this, there can even be disagreement among Christians because of them in the same church. A scholar pointed this out recently, I thought it was fascinating. One of the disciples was Simon the Zealot. Every time he's mentioned, he's always the Zealot. You know what the Zealot means? It means he was a Jewish nationalist. It means he resented Roman rule and Roman taxes, and he wanted to throw off big government, right? The other, one of the other disciples, every time he's identified as Matthew the tax collector, in other words, he's a guy that's into government rule. He collects taxes for the government, and they're in the same group of disciples. They are, you could not get two guys more opposite on the polar ends of the political spectrum. But you got both of them right there in the same band of people, and Jesus has brought unity between them. It's not that they lost their opinions. I'm sure there were some spirited discussions. It's just that they were united by a larger agenda that made the secondary agendas not so important, right? I, I think of this when I go watch um, UNC play Duke at the Dean Dome in basketball. For an hour and a half, you got a group of people in there who are uh, with unbelievable unity, right? Because they are united around one thing, and that is the glory of the Tar Heels and hatred of Duke University. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you. It doesn't matter what you bring into that place. It doesn't matter if you don't like each other before you get in there. It doesn't matter if you're on opposite sides of every other issue. For that hour and a half, you are in absolute unity. Your arms around one another. You're singing songs. You're because you got unity there because you got something greater than the things that divide you. It just lasts for an hour and a half. In that, you see a little glimpse of a church, though, because a church is not an hour and a half. That's not the only time we do it. But it doesn't mean that we agree on everything. That's not how unity is achieved. Unity in the church does not come by agreement on everything. It comes by uniting around something that outweighs everything that we disagree about. 
It means that, yeah, I got my styles, I got my preferences, I think this is right. I'm not trying to say everybody's right, okay? Some of you are right politically, the ones that agree with me. Some of you are, are off politically. Um, I'm, I'm not saying that everybody's right. I'm just saying that in a church, what you've got is the bread of Jesus is so large that you take secondary matters and they just don't become that important. That's your first word to characterize the gospel, God. Here's your second word, grace. Grace, the true gospel centers on what God has done for us, not on what we should do for him. Again, you see that verse 47. What should we be doing to re receive the bread? How do we get it? Nothing. You just believe. D.A. Carson points out that three-fourths of the Gospels, three-fourths of the Gospels are about one week of Jesus' life. Imagine if somebody wrote a biography of you and three-fourths of that biography was about one week in your life. He says that's what, that's what the Gospels are. They're about Jesus' life, or they're about one week, the crucifixion week, with a little preamble that leads up to that week. Now, that death, that gospel leads to profound change. But change is always in response to what God has done. These are things that you begin to do because you have been reconciled to God, not in order to be reconciled to God. We got a lot of false gospels out there cloaked in Christian sounding agendas. Oh, we gotta live out the new realities of the kingdom. We gotta reform our lives based on Christian principles. We gotta pursue justice for all peoples. We gotta be holy. And we ought to do all those things but they are not the core of the gospel. The core of the gospel is not about what you're to do for God. The core of the gospel is about what Jesus did for you. And what you do for him in the world is a response to the bread that he has given you. Please do not hear me wrongly. Believing the gospel leads to greater social activism and greater social transformation than any other factor. That's a historical fact. The slave trade in our world was brought to an end by one factor. The preaching and the activism of William Wilberforce and John Wesley, both of whom were evangelical Christians, one was a politician, one was a preacher, both did what they did because they were motivated by the gospel. I heard a historian recently point out that up until very recently, nearly every hospital built in sub-Saharan Africa, nearly every one was built by Christian missionaries. College students, your generation is not the first one to be interested in bringing healing to the broken places in our world. Every Christian who has truly believed the gospel has cared about that and has worked for it for as long as there has been a gospel. But see, when the Apostle Paul talked about the gospel, he said that the matters of first importance were not any of those things we're going to do for God. The matters of first importance, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, were Christ crucified for us, Christ resurrected for us. The core of the gospel, the first things, are not about what we do for him, it's about what he has done for us. And what we do for him flows out of that. God and grace. Now Jesus goes on in this chapter. You look, I want to take you through the end of it. To show what he means by this. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anybody eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give him for the, for the, for the life of the world is my flesh. Truly, truly, there it is again. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, I know that you are Christianized, most of you enough, that that, that, that statement is not that shocking to you. But could you imagine what it was like to hear that for the first time? Here you are sitting in an audience, a guy up there is, I mean, just imagine if you're kind of new to our church, and I close this sermon by saying, one thing that your family needs to achieve peace and harmony is you just need to come on up at the end of the service and munch on my flesh and drink up some of my blood. You are not coming back next week, I can guarantee you that. These people look at Jesus and they're like, have you lost your mind? Verse 66, after, many of, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, look, church, listen. Now we know that what he meant by that was that this eating was metaphorical. That when Jesus was crucified, his body would be broken like bread. His blood would be poured out like water. Believing in him is like eating his flesh and like drinking his blood. We get that now. But here's what I want you to see. At that point, they didn't get that yet. So they were offended and confused. And many of them kind of threw up their hands in exasperation and said, I like what you were teaching about that. But here, you have lost your mind. You're crazy. And I'm not going to follow you. I'm out of here. And then Peter speaks up, probably on behalf of many of the disciples. And it's just kind of an awkward moment. Something you make, look at the verses. You'll see awkwardness. Peter's like, well, we don't really get that either, Jesus. I'm going to be honest with you. And you know what? You had a huge crowd a few minutes ago. There was like 20,000 people there. 
And if you want to keep that crowd, you got to cut out the whole eat my flesh and drink my blood stuff. You are not going to build a crowd on that, I can promise you. That does not pull well. So Jesus looks back at him, verse 67. So Jesus says to the 12, you want to go away as well? Well, you, you, know, you, know, you notice what's missing in verse 67? You, you want to know what's missing? The silence is louder than the statement. What's missing is explanation. Jesus doesn't say, oh, no, 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 that's not what I meant. Here, here's what I meant. He just left it out there in all of its glorious awkwardness and says, all right, what I'm saying is offending you, okay? Would you like to go away as well? And then Peter makes one of the most profound declarations of faith anywhere in the Bible. Simon Peter says to him, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, one of the major themes of the Gospel of John is that God's truth comes down from heaven. God's truth is not figured out from below. And because it comes down from heaven from God, there are many things about God's truth that when we encounter it, it is offensive to us and it blows our minds. You see, think of other kinds of truth as going upward, right? I mean, science and philosophy, that's not a hard metaphor to see. Um, I mean, if you write a doctoral dissertation in science, you've got to discover a new thing to write about. You can't just write about old things because you've got to add to the knowledge base. So it's slowly going upward. And that's good, and that's exactly the way God intended it. He, he made us creatures that should study out his world, but God's truth will never be known that way. That's what Jesus is making clear here. We're too sinful to know God that way. We were so sinful that God had to reveal eternal truth from heaven to us. Because if we figured it out from below, it would just make us proud if he did. Right? If we figured it out from below, we'd be like, oh, I'm smart. That's why I got God. And pride is like the core of the human sinful problem. So God says, I'm not going to reveal myself in a way that caters to your pride. I'm going to send it down from heaven so that a child can get it. Plato had this, uh, Plato like the um, Socrates. Remember Socrates, his student Plato? That's a little throwback to Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Um, right, that's not really, not really how you pronounce his name, Socrates. Plato had this analogy. Um, he said that essentially, he, he described philosophers and scientists trying to figure out eternal truth. He said it's like them being chained up in a cave all their lives, staring only at the back wall of that cave. You're trying to figure out what's out there behind you because you know that there's light out there but you've never been able to look at it you've never been outside the cave you've never seen sunlight or any of the objects directly all you've seen are shadows that the light cast against the wall and he said that's even the greatest philosophers and scientists have never seen ultimate truth nobody has ever known all the truth there is to know in the universe nobody's been to the grave and back nobody's been able to get behind the physical universe to see if there's something behind it Science can tell you the what, it can't tell you the why. You know, it can tell you how things work mechanically, but it cannot tell you the origin of those things or their destination. Now, to use Plato's analogy, Jesus walks into that cave and says, I'm from outside the cave. I made everything outside the cave, and I can tell you what's up there. You might think that Jesus is crazy. You might disagree with what he says, but that ultimately is the question, is it not? Is Jesus who he says he is? Is he the Holy One of God? And if he is the Holy One of God, then he's telling you the truth. And if he's the Holy One of God, then you believe what he says about things you can't understand, not because you agree with him, but because of the nature of who he is. Again, which is why Jesus said his truth was accessible even unto children. I've always thought that a flaw of Western and Eastern kind of philosophy is that neither of them are accessible to children. Right, Western and, Eastern approach, Western and Eastern approaches to truth basically say that it is the smart, the intelligent, or the mystic who has all of his bodily faculties under tight control. They're the ones who are gonna discover truth and wisdom and divinity, which is great if you're smart and, and, and self-disciplined, but what about if you're not that smart? And what about if you, you are not as self-disciplined? Then, you know, too bad for you. You're never really gonna tap into divinity. Children cannot master a philosophy, and they probably can't tap into ideals, and I have four of the least self-disciplined children I've ever met in my life, but they can meet and trust a person. They can meet and trust a person. Can I share with you very quickly two verses that are absolutely key, absolutely key to my faith? These things, I mean, they, I, I probably quote these things in my mind once a week. Deuteronomy 29, 29. 
The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. What that means, watch this, is that there are two categories of things. And for you smart people, it's that latter core that drives you crazy. Secret things. Secret things. There are things that God says you're not going to understand. There are things about me, my purposes, and my ways. And I reveal those things. You're like, how do you tell the difference between secret things and revealed things? Well, one, secret things are never referring to things down here on earth like how physical, like science. Secret things refer to God. And what God does is revealed things about himself. You can never have an accurate depiction of God and his ways from below. It's always got to come down from above. I tell you, I would love to figure God out. I'd love to be able to explain to you all the mysteries of the universe. But God says, you know what? You want explanation? You get revelation. And I'm just going to tell you this is who I am. And there's a time, I'll give you some understanding, but if it's going to be a criteria for you following me, you're never going to follow. And Jesus will look right back in my face when there's a perfectly valid explanation. And he says, you're going to go away? You walking away? You putting me on the dock? You're going to say, I don't understand you, so I'm out of here? You'll never follow me that way. You will never follow me. There are secret things that God has, and then he reveals them, and we believe them. Here's another one, Psalm 131. I love this one, written by King David. Oh, Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. By the way, if this does not insult you, you are not reading it correctly. I do not occupy by myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with his mother. How many of you dudes connect to that analogy right there? You're like, that's me. That's what I want to be. I want to be an infant nursing at my mother's breast. That doesn't connect with me. I'm just going to be totally honest with you. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. What it's saying is in some ways, in relation to God, I'm like a child. Now please hear me, I am not anti-intellectual. You're, taught, you're listening to a guy who got his PhD in theology. My mom taught biology at a college. I'm not anti-intellectual by any means. I am simply saying that when it comes to God and his truth, there are some ways that in relation to him, I'm like a child. It, the way I, I describe it to you often is like this. When you have children, parents, sometimes you want to explain to them why you're telling them to do, but sometimes you just can't. And I'm like, Dad, why can't we have the hair dryer in the bathtub with us? Because then we could, you know, then we could, then we could wash our bodies and dry our hair at the same time. It would be so much more efficient, Dad. And I want to explain to them what an alternating current does and what it happens if the alternating current is alive in the water. But I just can't explain that to them. And I just say, just don't do it. In fact, give me that. <laughs> you don't have anything electric anywhere in the bathroom or even on the first floor if that's where you're bathing. We're going to take all of it out. Dad, why can't, why can't we take this fork and put it in those nice two little holes in the wall? Because it looks like it's made for that. And yeah, I could explain to them that, you know, that, that, that what happens is electrons get excited and they start jumping orbits and, and that's generally good until it enters your body. And then when it enters your body, it's bad. And I could explain that to them, but in the meantime, I just say, hey, Raya, who's four years old, hey, just don't do it. Just trust your daddy on this one. Now, I've asked you this. What do you think is greater, the gap between my four-year-old's understanding of reality and mine or the gap between my understanding and God's? My understanding and God's. So yes, I understand that there are times that God reveals things to me, secret things. And I just believe them. And I'll tell you this, some of the greatest blessings in my life have come from knowing when and how to question and when to simply to rest and to trust. Listen to me. Deuteronomy 29, 29 and Psalm 131 are bread. Understanding those verses is what bread for the soul is. Because what it is, is you are standing in front of glory who is overwhelming you with intense intimacy. That's glory and that's bread. So that's the question. Do you believe that Jesus is the Holy One of God and do you believe that he has the words of eternal life? If so, then where else are you gonna go? I know there are things that offend you if he's not offending you, you're not listening. The one thing you shouldn't do is do that crazy thing where you appropriate parts of Jesus and make your own new Jesus, a step for Jesus. That Jesus don't exist. So get out of your fantasy world. He's either Lord or he's not. So when he offends you, what are you gonna do when he offends you? That's the question. I know there are things you don't understand. Jesus basically here says that's gonna be a lifelong reality. Sometimes you're not going to understand. Times when you feel like your soul is in turmoil. And in those times, you are going to say, I don't know all the answers, but I know you. You're the Holy One of God. 
You were God. You died for me. You rose again for me. I'm sticking with you. He is the bread of life. You were created not for something. You were created for someone. Your soul craves his glory. It's what you were made for. It's what you hunger for. Glory is what takes your breath away and everything you see in our world, the beauty of the sunset. It's what blows your mind and the majesty of the universe. It's what you marvel at in the complexity of the atom or the human cell. It's that hunger you can't really describe but makes you long to be united with something that you can see in those things. John Piper says we look around and we see the evidences of God's glory all around us. Psalm 19 tells us the heavens declare, they preach the glory of God. Piper says he shouts with the clouds, he shouts with the blue expanse, he shouts with gold on the horizons, he shouts with galaxies and stars. He is always shouting, I am glorious. Open your eyes. Do you see it? Do you love it? You were made for this. This is why we exist, to see that. Everything is pointing to that. All the glory that I thought was so attractive in the world was ultimately pointing there. This empty world is all husks and ashes without him. He is the bread that your soul craves. To know that infinitely wise creator and call him father. To know infinite glory and majesty combined with infinite tenderness and intimacy, that and that alone is the bread that your soul craves. That is eternal life itself, John 17, 3. The alternative is to have a starving soul, to enter into an eternal existence, hell, with your soul still famished and starving. Hell, a place of nothingness and fire, but worst of all, a place with all traces of the glorious love of God removed. So it's like C.S. Lewis said, God threatens terrible things for those who refuse to be insanely happy in him. What are you gonna choose? Lesser breads, you're gonna choose a greater bread. This story is about people who couldn't believe because they didn't understand the nature of eternal bread. And so they were so fixated on marriages and kids and cars and world peace that they missed eternal bread. Have you eaten of that bread? Have you received it? It's what your soul is searching for. My invitation to you is to come and feast on Jesus. Maybe for you, this will be the first time you've ever feasted upon him. Maybe for the first time, you'll get the gospel and you'll receive him. Maybe you're already a Christian. And maybe what you need to do is just re-feast upon him. This is a daily practice for me is to re-embrace the bread of Jesus. That's why every morning, every morning when I get out of bed, I don't talk to anybody, I go into another room, I shut the door and I get out the Bible and I get on my knees and I feast upon heavenly bread. I read his word, I pray, I pray the gospel over my life. You need to start that habit and do it every day because that is the way that your, your soul stays filled with the glory of Jesus, reminding yourself of the gospel. It's why we're in small groups together, by the way. Because when we go through life, we need other people preaching the gospel to us. We need them applying the gospel to our marriages. And when we're going through pain, saying, this is how the gospel, this is how you eat on it here. It's why we do what we do as a church. So the invitation, if you never received the bread, is to receive it now. And if you have received it, to feast upon it again and again and again, even as we worship in these next few moments. Why don't you bow your heads really quickly and let me pray over us. If you have never receive Jesus every week of this series thus far what we have told you is that we have people that are ready to pray with you this week at Briar Creek North Briar Creek South they're going to be in the back of the auditorium you say well I want to receive Jesus but I don't you know do I need to talk to somebody no you don't but we know that sometimes it can help and sometimes you just need to talk to somebody who'll pray with you if uh, you got a friend with you or a spouse right now um just say to them, I, I want to go pray, and we'll go back in the lobby. We'll find a, a private place there, and we'll pray, and we'll, we'll talk through this. We want to show you what these steps are. So in a minute, when I stand this, this group up, you just step out, and you go backwards. We'll all stand up. You go backwards, and, uh, and we will focus our attention on the glory of Jesus in song here for a few minutes, okay? And all of our campuses, our counselors are already in place if you want to take use of those. But I want everybody at all campuses that are listening to me, stand up to your feet right now. Stand up. Stand up. If you want prayer, you move, you go to the back. Others of you direct your attention here um, as our worship teams lead us.